welcome friends. Grab your favorite cup of tea, coffee, or cocoa and settle in for Sips from the Sips from the Utica Institute Museum. Sips from the Sip is all about sharing the history of little-known people and places in Mississippi. We're serving up truth, justice, with a dollop of sass. I'm your host, Jean Green. Today's episode is the 11th of a multi-part series of readings and discussions from the book, Black Man's Burden. William Henry Holtzclaw was born in 1874 and raised in rural Randolph County, Alabama, to sharecropping parents. The Tuskegee graduate founded the Utica Normal and Industrial Institute for the Training of Colored Young Men and Women in Utica, Mississippi in 1903, making it the first little Tuskegee to be established in Mississippi. The Black Man's Burden, the autobiography of William Holtzclaw, published in 1915, made him one of the first black men to publish a book in Mississippi. Chapter 6 recounts some of the obstacles and opposition Holtzclaw faced from local churches in and around Utica in the early years of Utica Institute. Chapter 6 By September 1903, everybody seemed to conclude that the school project would be a failure, and enthusiasm was fast drying out. This was due in a large measure to the fact that we found it impossible to buy a tract of land anywhere near Utica upon which to start a school. First of all, the majority of landowners doubted the wisdom of selling any part of their land for a Negro school, and in the second place we had no money with which to buy land, which was not very important. However, as it does not always require ready money to buy land in the South. In the meantime, I had organized the colored people into an educational association of which I was president. We had our meetings every Monday night and as many call meetings during the week as we found necessary. But, as I have said, enthusiasm was dying out. The people were beginning to feel that I was a humbug, that I had collected all the money I could and would soon be gone. So they decided to elect a treasurer into whose hands I was to place all the money I collected. Up to this time, I had collected only 75 cents. I welcomed this move to elect a treasurer and promptly turned the 75 cents over to him. If I remember correctly, the Reverend Essex Gary was elected treasurer. No sooner had I turned over the money to Mr. Gary than someone objected to his leaving the house with it, saying that it would never be seen again. Mr. Gary became indignant and resigned on the spot, and it looked as if I was going to get the 75 cents back. It would have been given to me, perhaps, but for the fact that some fellow started a general disturbance, probably Dan Griffin, though I do not remember now. Mr. Gary was the local minister of the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, the membership of which consisted of two dozen men and women who had been persuaded that there 
was some way of getting to heaven outside of the Baptist church. Mr. Gary seemed to take himself very seriously, and he was respected by all who knew him, as far as I could see. But it seems as if he had been treasurer of a secret society, and that while he was treasurer, the society went dead, so to speak, and when the money was counted, the men and women were not satisfied with Mr. Gary's accounting. His friends maintained that he had been strictly honest, but a few persons whom he considered his enemies always contended that he had not given the proper accounting of the funds. Dan Griffin was a young recruit to the Baptist Church, and his feelings toward the Methodist people were none too good. He was intent on running the church, the school, and all the societies on a high plane. Some years before he joined the church, he had been a man of the world, pure and simple, and had been considered somewhat rough in his character. Now that he was a Christian, he was as willing to fight for the church and for righteousness as he had been willing to work for the evil forces. This, I suppose, accounts for his raising a rough house when he felt that the wrong man had been elected treasurer. However, we had to have a treasurer, so another ballot was taken, and it was decided that no man in the house could be trusted with the money. By way of compromise, someone then suggested that Mr. W.J. Ferguson, a white man and the president of the Bank of Utica, should be elected treasurer which was done. When Mr. Ferguson was notified the next day, he considered it the biggest joke of the season. He accepted, however, and began acting as the treasurer of the new organization. Now that we had a treasurer, we were ready to go forward, though not very far with only 75 cents. The majority of the people were beginning to abandon the project, and things were looking decidedly gloomy. Something extraordinary had to be done. In order to revive their spirits and to show them that I meant business, I went to E.H. Curry Brothers and asked for a loan of a few hundred dollars with which to provide lumber for a schoolhouse. They not only granted the loan, but also took it upon themselves to provide a couple of carloads of lumber at reasonable prices without any security whatever except the word of a few colored men whom they knew. I think that by this time I had convinced them of the possibility of my project, but when the lumber arrived, we had no land upon which to place it. So by permission, we stacked it up in the little churchyard. Enthusiasm revived now, even among the white people, and a good woman in the town soon agreed to sell us 20 acres of land. We bought this land without paying a cent of money. We simply promised to pay within three years, and we began the erection of the first schoolhouse that the colored people of that section of the state had ever built. Before all this took place, however, I had to spend three weeks explaining to the Methodist people and the sanctified folks why I had put the lumber in the Baptist churchyard. I at length convinced them that I was not going to build a Baptist school, but a school for all the people. The sanctified folks, sometimes called spot or wrinkle folks, was the name of a new religious sect 
or at least it was new in Mississippi. It was headed by the saintly leader C.P. Jones, with headquarters at Jackson, the capital of the state, and it had for its motto, absolute perfection in every member. It was, and is to this day, a forceful, domineering religion. It was sweeping everything before it in our neighborhood. First, because it was new, and Negroes will accept anything new. And second, because it was a religion that was fundamentally correct and that appealed to the hearts of those who embraced it and of many who did not. But the Baptist people who had been dominating the community during all the years that the Negroes had been free were fighting this new religion with all their might. Their arguments were interesting. At some points, the two denominations came almost together in their beliefs, and in some others they were wide apart. For instance, the Baptist had a doctrine stated in these words, once in Christ and never out while the sanctified people had a doctrine which made it plain that the man who was born of God cannot sin. One would think that the believers of these two religions could have agreed, but they did not. The trouble was that the sanctified leader was too much in earnest for the Baptist folks. He preached that men should live absolutely pure lives without spot or wrinkle. The Baptist people said that while they would like to see this done, it was impossible, and that the only being that could live absolutely without sin in this sinful world was an angel. Some amusing incidents occurred. A great many members of the Baptist and Methodist churches left and went to the sanctified church, and at length the Methodist preacher himself became sanctified, but failed to carry his congregation with him. There is no doubt that the sanctified people were in earnest about the saving of souls as well as about making men better. Their sermons were full of power and very convincing. They had no church house in which to worship, but at first they were allowed to use the Methodist and Baptist churches. They were soon put out of these, however, and then they began to hold meetings in the open air. I remember that one of their methods was to require each member that joined them to renounce himself or herself and publicly confess all previous sin. These confessions caused a good deal of turmoil whenever they were made, and the people that made them were so much in earnest that very often they told secrets that carried them to the divorce courts and to prison, broke up families, and caused a general readjustment. I was told that the year before I came to Utica, when the sanctified people first made their appearance, the turmoil was even greater than it was after I came. A story is told of a local minister who was officiating one night at a service when a sister offered herself for membership. The local minister asked her to tell all her previous sins, and she began to tell things that startled the audience. On and on she went with her story, involving men and women until everybody was tense with excitement. Then she came to a point in the narrative where she evidently thought she ought to stop. But the minister, who by this time was happy, 
shouted to her to go on with the story and tell it all. Then she hesitatingly began to relate some incidents in her life, which involved the minister himself. And then he said, Take her out, brother, and she is crazy. After that, new members were not required to tell more of their experience than they felt like telling. There is no doubt, however, that the sanctified church during the past 12 years has done more to develop good character and Christian spirit in this community than any other church. Its leader and founder, the Reverend C.P. Jones, whom I have already mentioned, is a strong and forceful character. He is an earnest minister of the gospel, truly a man of God, and he has many lieutenants who are just as earnest, if not so forceful. The denomination is rapidly spreading throughout the South. I now started out on foot, went from house to house among both white and colored people, soliciting their aid, and received it in a degree that enabled me to pay for the lumber and land within three months. Meanwhile, I had opened school in the open air, for I had been unable to get permission to teach in the little church. School opened the first Monday in November, 1902. It is a custom of the public schools in Mississippi to have three Negro trustees, at least one of whom is to be on hand at the opening day to install the new teacher. One of them certainly was on hand the morning we opened school. He sang, I read the Bible, and he offered a long and solemn prayer. At its close, he attempted to lead the children in the Lord's Prayer, and he got as far as the daily bread. But although he struggled desperately, he could not get any further. Thereupon, he deliberately went back and started afresh. But when he came to the daily bread, he stopped again. The children, who had been suppressing their amusement, now burst out in a hearty laugh, whereupon Miss Lee, who was my first assistant, took up the prayer, and finished it for him. Then he stood up and began a lecture on good manners, which was directed apparently at the students, but in reality at me, for he seemed to blame me for the students' laughter, although he had not yet put me officially in charge. Nevertheless, he turned them over to me in a few minutes, and school was opened. These were dreary times indeed, with many hardships, with many difficulties that were mere annoyances. We were still teaching in the open air, out under the big trees amidst the shrubbery. This would have made a very good schoolhouse, but for its size. In such a schoolhouse, one could get along very well if he could keep his pupils close enough to him. But the chances are, as I have found, that they will put bugs down one another's collars, and while you are hearing one class, the other children will chase one another about. Their buoyant spirits will not permit them to keep quiet while they are in the open. It is pretty hard to hear a class reciting and at the same time to witness a boxing match, but those who teach in the open air must be prepared for such performances. These annoyances were accentuated by the fact that some of my pupils were 40 years old, while others were six. After a while, we moved into an abandoned house, which we used for a schoolhouse, but it was little better than teaching out of doors. 
When it rained, the water not only came through the top, but through the sides as well. During cold winter rains, I had to teach while standing with my overcoat on and with Arctic rubbers to protect myself against pneumonia. During those rainy days, Miss Lee would get up on a bench and stand there all day to keep her feet out of the water and would have an umbrella stretched over her to keep from getting wet from above. The little fellows would be standing in the water below like little ducks. They stood these conditions exceedingly well. Many of them were not protected with overshoes or any shoes, but they came to school each day just as if they had been properly clad. It is impossible to describe the hardships that we suffered during that winter, which was severe for the South. As the winter came on and grew more and more severe, a great many of the children were taken with pneumonia, la grippe, and similar ailments. I wished in the interest of health to abandon the school for a few weeks until better weather, but neither pupils nor teachers nor parents would listen to this, and so the school continued under these circumstances until the new schoolhouse was ready for use. It is needless to say that some of the pupils never survived those conditions. In fact, the strange thing is that any of us did. During this time, I would teach during the day and at night would go to some appointed place from 5 to 15 miles away in the country, speak to the people, stir up enthusiasm for education, and bring back a little collection to help carry forward the new school. Sometimes this collection would be 25 cents, and sometimes as much as $3. On Thanksgiving Day, we held a Thanksgiving service, the first that had ever been held among the colored people in Utica. It took nearly half the day to explain to them what was meant by Thanksgiving Day. But once they understood it, they contributed freely from their little savings to the amount of $37.50. During all this time, I had been bitterly opposed by the colored Baptist minister whose word was law to every colored man and woman in the community. He had fought me from every point of vantage. I had made one attempt to reconcile him, but he would not hear me. Then I had simply let him alone. After a while, he came within a hundred yards of the school in which I was teaching and sent for me to come to him saying that he wished to talk with me. I went down to the road where he was. We sat down on the ground, and this, as near as I can remember, was the substance of his remarks. Brother Hoseclaw, I have come to talk with you on the matter of your efforts here. I have watched you constantly and have done everything in my power to injure you. I have tried to block your progress, and I have tried to break you up because I thought you were a humbug. I simply did not like your face when I first saw you. But I have seen my mistake, and I have come humbly to beg your pardon. I would have come as far as the schoolhouse, but I did not feel worthy to put my foot on the ground until I should confess my sins, and I want to beg you to forgive me. I promise you that in the future, I will help you push forward that which I now see to be a great work. 
Let us pray. He got down on his knees and prayed such a prayer as I have never heard since. Then he called on me to pray. And there we were, by ourselves, down on the roadside. Meanwhile, a Negro passed by on a mule and went uptown and told everybody that the Baptist preacher had Professor Holeslaw down on his knees in the road praying over him or doing something he could not tell what. The news went abroad at once, and a great many people came up to see what had really happened. I think there was a mild suspicion that I had conjured the preacher. This was perhaps due to his sudden conversion when it became known. Meanwhile, we got up out of the road and shook hands. After it was all over, I found myself admiring the man, and I could see the same admiration for me in his face. Since that time, we have been warm friends. No minister has done more by word or act to make the work at Utica a success than this same Baptist preacher. This story is worth telling because it is one of many like instances that took place in the beginning and because it reveals the cause of the failure of many an enterprise in various communities. If you cannot get on with the colored preachers in a place, your chances of success are slim in that community. The work on the new schoolhouse was progressing. Strange to say, all the lumber that I have spoken of, which was provided by the Curry brothers, was finishing material. It contained no framing. All the work that had been done up to this time was finishing work. We had not yet bought the material for the foundation. As we had no money with which to buy it, we felled some trees in the forest, which came to us as a sort of contribution. Colored people do not regard trees as private property in the far south. At least they did not used to do so. And it was not difficult for us to obtain the gift of those whom we consulted. I led the farmers into the woods where we felled the trees, then we placed them on the wagons, hauled them to a nearby sawmill, and had them cut into lumber on shares. In this way, we succeeded in getting enough framing to finish the first building. Despite the start we had made, however, I was fully aware of the weakness of our organization, and so I began to strengthen it by forming a more extensive organization on a legal basis. It was then that I obtained the services of the Honorable Paul D. Ratcliffe, a reputable attorney of Raymond, the county seat of Hines County, and he drew all the plans of the organization according to my wishes and as nearly like those of Hampton and Tuskegee as we could. We obtained a charter from the state of Mississippi and elected a new board of trustees. This body consisted of some of the Negroes already serving as trustees, together with some influential white men in the community, and some white men and women in the North and West, whose consent to serve on the board I had previously obtained. The wisdom of having a mixed board of Northern and Southern white men and of Negroes has been amply justified. These trustees were not simply figureheads, but were men and women deeply interested in the progress of the colored race and of the South in general. 
Not long after this organization was formed, some of the trustees began to visit the school, coming from as far away as Wisconsin and California, in order to familiarize themselves with our efforts. The Southern white men who were chosen were of the highest type of progressive citizens and were not only interested in the school as a school, but would have been just as much interested in any other effort that had for its object the betterment of the condition of the whole people. These Northern and Southern whites have met the Negroes trustees annually at the institution, and all the meetings have been of the most harmonious sort. They have investigated the school and all its conditions and have remedied matters very often as they could not otherwise have been remedied. The majority of the trustees pass a whole day at the school once a year, and the chairman of the board, Dr. Henry E. Cobb of New York City, usually performs the annual duty of presenting diplomas to the graduates. After 12 years of contact with these men from various parts of the country, I am convinced that the best sort of an organization for this kind of Southern work is an organization composed of Southern white men, Southern Negroes, and Northern white men. In such an organization, the corporation gets the benefit of the various points of view and under such circumstances, there is little reason why it should not keep itself in line with all that is best for itself and for everybody concerned. As I have said before, our board of trustees, to whom all our property is deeded and who control and direct the destiny of this work, is made up of interested individuals from various parts of the country. The personnel of the board as it now stands is as follows. The Northern and Western Whites are Messrs. Henry E. Cobb of New York City, Francis B. Sears of Boston, W.J. Shefflin of New York City, George L. Payne of New Haven, Connecticut, John H. Storer of Boston, Miss Fidelia Jewett of San Francisco, and Miss E. M. Perkins of Cleveland, Ohio. The Southern Whites are Bishop Theodore D. Bratton of Jackson, Mississippi, Mrs. R. W. Millsap of Jackson, Mississippi, W. J. Ferguson of Utica, Mississippi, D. C. Simmons of Utica, Mississippi, and Z. Wardlow of Utica, Mississippi. The Southern Negroes are Messrs. Emmett J. Scott of Tuskegee, Alabama, Charles Banks of Mount Bio, L.K. Atwood of Jackson, Mississippi, and W.H. Holtzclaw, Dan Lee, Plez McCatney, Harrison Flanders, and Isaiah Marshall of Utica, Mississippi. Thank you for tuning in for Sips from the Sip. Joining me next time to discuss Chapter 6 will be Mrs. Loretta Gandy. Mrs. Gandy is a retiree of the Utica campus of Hines Community College. Be sure to tune in for what I'm sure will be a lively discussion. The Utica Institute Museum is dedicated to expanding knowledge of the history of Utica Institute and its role in Southern Black education. This program is supported by donations from our listeners. 
If you enjoy learning about the history of William Holtzclaw, the Utica Institute, and Mississippi, consider donating. To support Sips from the Sip and all the work at the Utica Institute Museum, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Utica Institute. Until next time, this has been Jean Green coming to you from the heart of the sip.